Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to everyone in the audience. It's great to have you with us today for the panel on the optimal design of a central bank digital currency. And also a warm welcome to all of our panelists for today, which are Anthony Welfare, um, Philip Sandner, Peter Dittes, and Stephen Hildebrandt. Great to have you with us. Before we get started with the individual um, introductions, we will, of course, take a second to thank our sponsors without whom this would not be possible. And Events such as this one are crucial to the debate out there, not just in academic circles, but also in the general public, as we find at the Digital Euro Association. Now, briefly, before we start with the presentation on the CBDC manifesto, I would like to introduce all of our panelists, basically handing it over to themselves at this point. And Anthony, why don't you start with introducing yourself and we'll take it from there. Thanks, Sarah. And hi, everyone. And um, thank you for joining the, the panel today. Um, so I'm Anthony Welfare. I'm Senior Advisor for CBDCs and Global Partnerships here at Ripple. Philip, you're unmuted. Why don't you go next? Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, Philip uh, Sandner is my name. I'm a professor at the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management. It's a, a private business school in Germany. Maybe not everybody knows it, uh, but we are um, educating primarily in finance and in business since decades primarily in the financial sector. And over there, we have founded the blockchain center called Frankfurt School Blockchain Center. We are very active there. Uh, we are primarily focusing on crypto assets nowadays, but this also includes stable coins and with stable coins, then of course, also CBDCs. And uh, together with Sarah and also Jonas from the Digital Euro Association, um, I can say that we are very proud of having had the idea to spin off the DEA three years ago and now it has become uh, an independent uh, association. Um, so therefore, it's nice uh, to see the, this, 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 this organization uh, organizing such a high-profile high event uh, today. Yeah, very nice. Great to have you with us, Philip. Stephen, please introduce yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Uh, Stephen Hildebrand from uh, Bundesdruckerei. Yes, I'm here on behalf of Bundesdruckerei. Uh, I joined them in April this year as a senior product manager for digital currencies, especially the topic uh, CBDC. Um, maybe some words to myself. I would describe myself as a self-educated uh, blockchain geek who is yeah, very interested in the cap uh, capabilities regarding the public sector. And I think there are yeah, huge opportunities we, we have in the public sector regarding DLT technology. Welcome, Stephen. Great to have you with us. And good to hear about your background as well. Peter, let's conclude the round by introducing you. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks, Sarah. Well, I'm Peter Titus. I'm working <clears throat> on CBDCs for small countries mostly, and with a number of organizations, in particular SFB Technologies. We have been working for a digital currency for a Pacific island country. And before uh, doing that, I was the uh, Secretary General of the Bank for International Settlements. All right. So as we can see, very diverse backgrounds from industry of various sorts, academia and practical experience, not just with uh, the launch and design um, of CBDCs, um, but also beyond. So I'm excited personally to be 
um, welcoming all of you today and to um, discuss design dimensions, financial stability um, aspects of retail CBDCs. And before we get started with this discussion, I would like to give you an overview of the so-called CBDC manifesto, which was released in Washington, D.C. at the CBDC summit this year, which um, yeah was held in collaboration with the CBDC tank, which might be a well-known name by now, actually, in the world of um, CBDCs. So to get started, the CBDC manifesto basically was an idea, as I said, by the Digital Euro Association and by the CBDC think tank, especially Jamil Shaikh, a big name in the world of CBDC research and also the founder of the CBDC think tank, which is um, more so focusing on consulting central banks around the world, whereas the DIA is taking a quite broad stance in terms of um, not just speaking to central banks, but also the general public. So we do do similar things. And this is basically where our objectives aligned. And we basically said, we would like to create a manifesto that manifests the design dimensions of a retail CBC that from our perspective are non-negotiable um, and that we would like to get people's names under. This isn't just... Um, basically a written up text. This is something that 50 experts and even more actually contributed to with their expertise in terms of putting together the CBDC manifesto. And now we have the opportunity for people to actually sign their names under it as well in case that they support it. And if you would like to learn more, then please do follow this QR code that you can see here. You can read it. And if you decide this is truly something that I want my name signed under, then you can sign it as well. Now, to give you background on what exactly it is all about, we have developed five concrete um, design recommendations for retail CBDC focusing on the US, but also the Euro area. The first concrete design recommendation that we have in the CBDC manifesto listed is that a CBDC needs to have a strong value proposition and tangible benefits for the citizens, clearly. So a CBDC should be designed with the citizens at heart, and a CBDC cannot simply be an additional means of payment next to N26, PayPal, Swish, and the likes that are already out there that we are already know, because people will simply not understand why they should use a CBDC instead of these means of payment that they've already gotten used to, where they already have the app on their phones and so on. And the real reason, of course, um, why a CBDC makes sense is, of course, because it's a direct claim on the central bank. However, we cannot expect people to understand CBDCs to the extent that they will truly only use CBDC for, for that reason alone. It will have to provide other benefits such as offline payments without an intermediary bank needed after um, settlement is processed, for example, it will also need to be more efficient. And we can also not just look at this from the perspective of the citizen, but also from merchants, for example. So fewer transaction fees or lower transaction fees would be one of those benefits. And then we can also look at it from the perspective of companies. So for example, programmable payments would be one tangible benefit for companies. However, you could argue that it would not be a tangible, be tangible benefit for citizens. So what can we conclude here? We can really say that it also depends on what angle you look at, of course, whether something is a strong value proposition or not. And during the design process of the CBDC manifesto, we also actually saw that the experts did not always agree 
on all cases such as this one. And so every single word that you see in the CBC manifesto is truly crafted in a way where we got a lot of feedback from different sites um, and tried to make all of the differing opinions align at the end of the day. Moving on to the second design recommendation, which is offering the highest degree of privacy possible. Now, again, here, the wording of highest degree of privacy is, of course, referring to what's technologically feasible. And we do see in various reports of the European Central Bank, not just in the one that we saw, for example, in November, in October, sorry, in 2020, that privacy is highly valued by the European Central Bank as one of the most important features of CBDC. We also see it in other reports um, coming after that they actually specifically examined how citizens saw this aspect also in terms of basically what they said was important to them. So a lot of citizens actually said or indicated that a high degree of privacy was important to them. But then again, in action, so basically the amount of data that citizens were willing to hand over to um, to banks, for example, or other types of institutions where they have to disclose these information were actually handed over, let's say, more light-handedly than they indicated in those requests. So this is another very, very interesting development that we see here. And how would this be possible? Well, technologically, this isn't particularly hard to actually implement. It's more a question of compliance and has to do with AML and say. CFT requirements um, from the state. So it's more of a policy issue to actually have the highest degree of privacy um, in a retail CBC. The third principle is the do no harm principle. And this is a very, very far reaching principle. And also, again, quite, quite broadly put. But what we really mean here with the do no harm principle is that the design features of a CBDC, which could entail um, negative interest rates and um, the requirements that we see in the current market with high inflation or stagflation even, as you could say, um, could you know lead a CBDC to be used for policy measures. And the line has to be drawn here clearly between financial policy and policy of government and the country in general. This also includes programmable payments as a um, Attack vector, for example, we can say that um, programmable money, for example, could be used as a voucher and could potentially do harm to society in basically telling them what to buy until what date to buy or having a way of letting money expire, which we haven't seen before. Next up, we have the collaborative approach involving all stakeholders in the design of a retail CBDC. Specifically, this means that citizens should be included in the design process, which they're currently doing, at least in the Euro area, where we see different polls and um, questionnaires being handed out. They are included in the reports that are coming out frequently from the European Central Bank, for example. This also includes um, financial institutions, private financial, financial institutions that we see that have the expertise when it comes to user experience um, and designing uh, this uh, user experience, but also a digital means of payment. Why is this? Because central banks, they have the mandate to, to issue money to ensure financial stability, but they do not necessarily have the expertise in-house to create a CBDC because this is obviously an unprecedented 
um, an unprecedented project and undertaking that they do not necessarily have in-house expertise in. So this is why it's important to truly um, involve all stakeholders. This also includes cross um, jurisdictions, of course, which is also leading me to the fifth and final point that is concluding the CBDC manifesto, meaning interoperability. And now you can see this is including technical, regulatory, and also um, usage interoperability. This issue, of course, depending on um, the primary reason why one would introduce a CBDC in a certain jurisdiction, um, has has different yeah, almost almost value or um, has a different focus. So, for example, the technical one should ensure that you shouldn't have uh, in your CBDC wallet a CBDC then for euro and for the um, Chinese CBDC and so on, but rather that there is an interoperability existing there for you to make it to have it as a seamless experience. Then regulation. I mean, if you look at the German uh, regulation right now, we're not even sure if we're going to necessarily define it as money. Is it a thing after German law? Law? Are you going to regulate it as a new means of payment? Are you going to include it in existing regulation? All these questions are open. And depending on how one jurisdiction is going to resolve these, this also affects all the others and the interoperability of the CBDCs around you. And as I said, Usage interoperability is also another big one, which can potentially contribute or also break the point of a strong value proposition for a CBDC, both locally and globally. Think about commercial bank, bank money as well. This, of course, isn't necessarily the case with central bank digital currencies. But if you have different digital money from different commercial banks, the question arises, are these interoperable with one another? So it's not just an international question that we're really asking here, but also amongst different um, yeah, commercial banks in this case within one country or jurisdiction. And this, of course, is going to be relevant if we do settle for a two-tiered um, system or intermediated CBDC approach. These were the five design recommendations. If you're curious now, you can, of course, read it yourself and, as I said, actually sign it if you deem that this is worth putting your name under. Last but not least, we do have more context on it in terms of who contributed and kind of the roadmap to the Finnish CBDC manifesto as a podcast episode number 35, either by scanning the QR code or um, typing in Digital Euro Podcast and then number 35. That was it from my side. If there's any questions specifically about the CBDC manifesto, I'll be happy to take them. And otherwise, after, I think this is going to be a great starting point for our discussion on the optimal design of a CBDC. If there's no questions from the audience, I'd of course like to hand it over to our panelists for today. And of course, we have a couple of questions prepared. But now that you've actually gotten a good overview of the CBDC manifesto, is there any comment, any remark that you'd like to make from the top of your head? I could I could give an, an, a, a kickstart here. So first of all, I, I was also a part of the team drafting the CBDC manifesto with you, Sarah, and many others. Um, we know that all these demands will and cannot all be followed by governments around the world. You know, this, this, I think this will not be possible, but at least we wanted to highlight the values, which we, which we would love to see at least to be considered, right? Even though it might not be possible because as we, as a uh, digital Euro association, I'm also a member there, by the way, as we, as the DEA um, are seeing it, 
it's not our task to implement it. You know, the task is with the ECB, it, for you, speaking for Europe, but it's our task as DEA to demand what we find uh, should be reflected in terms of values uh, important for the society. So therefore, that's what we wanted to do. Set out proposals, set out demands, set out points where we found that they are important to be discussed. But it's not our task uh, to then implement it. That's basically the ECB with its budget and its consultants and its market advisory groups and all else and so on and so forth. But we felt that uh, the societies and also other associations around Europe have not developed the sophisticated knowledge such that, that they can express what they wanted to have. That's why we took this gap and uh, wanted to express what we found based on many, many, many talks and uh, surveys and so on, uh, what we found societies um, probably could believe in um, privacy, freedom, and so on and so forth. And the last remark I would like to make at this early point of this discussion is the following. What is the ECB currently doing? It's doing, in my personal opinion, something like a credit card 2.0. Um, but it could have done something differently, right? The ECB could have also decided to do another variant of the CBDC, for example, something for cross-border outside Europe or doing like a wholesale CBDC or whatever. But now it has been fixed that the current version of what the ECB seeks to develop is a credit card 2.0. And then for me, of course, the question comes up, do we really need a credit card 2.0? Because the credit card 1.0 works exceptionally well especially with the integration in the smartphone. Uh, this this day to day, I paid three times with my Apple and it was an amazing experience day by day. It works absolutely fascinatingly. That's the version one credit card. So do we really need a version two credit card by the ECB? Even, even then, when it comes just in four years, because the credit card in the iPhone will also progress and advance in these couple of years. So do we really need it? And um, concerning privacy, to some degree, well, yes, I know my payments are also recorded by MasterCard and maybe by Apple. That's fine, but I trust them. That's okay for now, but I can still work around there. You know how? I have a couple of credit cards and I have a couple of uh, payment methods. So I distribute the data over many silos. Um, they can, of course, companies can consolidate this on the background. I know this, but at least it's a little bit difficult, more difficult. And therefore, I also see the privacy argument set out by Sarah, because in case you are by design, record every transaction in one and the same database, I think it makes basically uh, data analytics a little bit too easy. I think just, just taking on from that, that point is the most important part is why is the ECB bringing in a digital euro? Why is the Fed doing digital dollar, et cetera, et cetera? So whichever country. And, you know, there's some very obvious reasons why a CBDC is useful for um, developing countries and island nations and, and you know, some of the rest of the world, um, you know, and, and many around financial inclusion, access, um, natural disasters and things like that, where a digital currency issued by their central bank or monetary authority really helps um, move them forward because they don't have, um, you know, the fintechs like we have in the West and Apple Pay and things like that. So, um, so that's one side to look at it. The within the eurozone and across the eurozone and around the eurozone, um, you know, the obvious point is is around interoperability and actually having a digital euro that people don't need to know 
where it's backed and how it's backed in per se. So we spend a lot of time saying that people need to know it's backed by a bank or backed by here and there. That's the existing current, the existing system and how the existing system works and what happens there. Do we really need to know and do people know the difference between M0, M1, et cetera, et cetera? I'm not sure we should be expecting the citizens of Europe to understand the financial and monetary processes. They want a digital euro to make things simpler and quicker and maybe some of the programmable uh, programmability that can happen is a benefit for example benefits payments um so i got back in this space uh, just before covid and um, one of the biggest issues with covid was to get the payments to the people quickly and efficiently and i worked with the uk government um on a number of projects none of which happened um they decided to use spreadsheets and old systems, which is why they're now trying to claw back billions of dollars or pounds, should I say. But, um, you know, things like getting payments to people quickly, easily, efficiently is what these systems can do. So we probably should be looking more at those types of solutions for, for Euro type countries rather than, as you say, Philip, exactly. I've got an iPhone and payments are perfect. And I've got banking accounts that can move things around, but not everybody has bank accounts and not everybody can transfer money simply. And I think that's probably where the ECB and the digital euro will make the most benefits. And hopefully the ECB is starting to see the other things as well. I know they're, they're on it. It's quite interesting. As you've, I've never heard it classified as credit card 2.0, but I think it's it's very accurate for where they are today. But hopefully they'll, they'll move a bit further on. Mm. Perhaps, um, I, um, if you may, I, I would like just to maybe take a step back before we head into introducing a digital euro or a CBDC uh, just anywhere. Um, why are we in this discussion, I think, is, is an interesting question. Because um, I don't think central banks started this discussion of we need a CDBC or uh, customers didn't ask for a CBDC. Actually, no one asked for it. I think it started with a crypto hype and uh, it started in particular when um, big tech companies like uh, Facebook were actually uh, starting their project Libra, then rebranded as Diem, and it became a kind of threat to central bank money, potentially, not actually, but potentially. And then suddenly everyone said, hey, this this could be a big thing. So let's wake up. We need to do something. What does it mean to do something? Well, meaning it, to do something in the first instance means occupying the public relations space. And uh, that you do uh, by doing research projects. Also, you need to build up internal expertise to be able to talk to the people, like the people like you, uh, Anthony, or in Ripple and these people, you need to have enough background, intellectual background to talk to these people. So this is, I think, what we are seeing. And I think most central banks, actually, they are not on the way of introducing a CBDC. They run projects, they do white papers, they do very great stuff. They have gone together in the BIS. They have created a special unit to actually do that. Uh, they run very interesting stuff, I must say. But I, I think... The only exception 
of a central bank who is maybe really thinking about the CBDC potentially uh, in in the Western world, I think is is Sweden because there the cash circulation has gone down sort of almost not like in China, but it has gone down so significantly that they have to ask themselves these questions. But I think everywhere else, people they they, they study and um, they are not really seeing that this is something that needs to be done, but it needs something that needs to be discussed and where you need to be on top of things. So I think it's important when we discuss about this, I think the manifesto is a great stuff uh, because it shows the desirability. And if you go to the uh, criteria number one, there must be a strong value proposition. And as Philip said, uh, in Europe, what's the really, can we name easily what's the strong value proposition? Because the stuff works. I mean, uh, for most people, even cross-border via SIPA works pretty well within Europe. So in Europe, it's pretty hard to say this is the number one reason why we need a digital euro as fast as possible. And I think that is why you see that there's not a lot of drive behind these uh, CBTC efforts, uh, except for some countries which we can discuss later. Peter, can I just jump in there quickly uh, before I let Stephen talk, of course, as well? Um, Just because... I mean, your statement was kind of provocative if you think about it, right? And I want to extend this question to you. Is a CBDC in the euro area, according to you, a solution in search of a problem, which is a headline that CBDCs oftentimes make? You know, um, if you also look at the Bahamas right now and we see the adoption rate of just between one to 3% of the population actually using the CBDC of the sand dollar, Does this even make sense in other jurisdictions that have already launched their CBDC? Well, I think it's uh, putting it uh, pretty strongly. uh, But for many countries uh, at the current discussion and at the current designs that we are looking at, let's say call it credit card 2.1 if you or 2.0 if you want, I think uh, much, much of the discussion is actually solutions looking for problems. Uh, And I think at least that's how it's how it's seen by by many central banks. I actually have several thoughts as well regarding the CBDC topic. Um, when it comes to the design principles from the CBDC manifesto, I think the first strong value proposition goes hand in hand with the second one with privacy in Europe. Um, but when we uh, look at CBDCs globally, we really have this uh, remittance fees issue. And um, I think that's something you wanted to um, achieve with the interoper, uh, interoperability um, that when 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 people are sending money globally, they really have to pay high fees. And I think there's a quarterly report from the World Bank saying it's a six percent average, and banks have ten percent on on average. And I think that's something when you when you look closely to a, to a CBDC solution globally as um, as public money. That's something that has to be solved because right now there's only private money and private companies have to earn money. And if there is no is, is no business model behind uh, being being a bank in in emerging market uh, economies, um, then it's very costly to to uh, reach people. And I actually have yeah uh, some some African and Lebanese friends, and uh, they are sending money to to the Lebanon or to to Africa. And it's it's really costly. And um, if you think about uh, 10 or 12 percent in fees for sending money, 
Um, then it comes to the stablecoin thing, and now we have inflation, and so everything is um, more or less like yeah, um, being being um, being on the uh, yeah being discussed right now. Just on um on cross border that because obviously um you know Ripple our, our entire business has been founded on cross border payments so ten years of a uh, cross border and we're processing around about fifteen billion a year um in cross border on our you know one side of our business so friends price so we we see this massively we've been working in the space you know ten years and I think. Really interesting discussions internally of how CBDCs stroke regulated stablecoins. So we we sort of see regulated stablecoins and CBDCs fairly similar from a tech perspective, especially more or less, you know, if it's issued by a commercial bank, it's fairly safe. Um, obviously, if it's at the other end of the cryptocurrency scale, it's not as safe um, as, as we've seen issues in the last few few weeks and months. Um, but in terms of the interoperability, it was quite interesting, a discussion that I had previously with um, uh, one of our founders and the CTO, David Schwartz, who actually wrote the XRP ledger, uh, one of the guys that invented it. And the way he looked at this, he wrote the XRP ledger to make payments simply and easily for everyone. That's the XRP ledger. That's what that that's built for. Um, so it's not built like Bitcoin and Ethereum for other things. It is built for very fast, cheap payments. And you can do tokenization and assets. What he said during my conversation with him was CBDCs are actually looking, in his view, and stablecoins, is looking to be this um, cross-border uh, solution that people are looking for. And exactly as Stevens just said, is if you have a, a, you know, what Facebook was trying to do, a global stable coin, then you can you can transact between the euro, uh, between Europe and Lebanon and, you know, wherever, you know, Afghanistan and wherever you need to. Um, so you can do that sort of quite simply. The more I've got into discussions with central banks globally, the more they want to do their own things. So CBDCs look are looking internal and they're sort of missing the point. And, you know, I did an interview with American banker yesterday, uh, this week around this to say, it's great to have a CBDC based on, you know, different technologies because it's faster and more efficient and those things, especially in developing world. But as we've just talked about in developed world, it's not going to make that much difference. It's not going to shift the agenda. But actually the, the cross-border and the interoperable will be. And I think that's only just starting. And obviously, you know, the, the American banker conversation was about the New York Fed and Maz and a couple of others doing a cross-border trial. So I think that for me is where a CBDC is going to help to then enable interoperability in a better way and, and miss out some of the steps. But it's not a CBDC focus just internally is not going to solve the problem. It still has to be this interoperable cross-border. So it's a really interesting point. And, and I think, you know, as Peter said, it's I think the rest of the, the, the central banks are sort of missing this point. Well, I actually uh, have... A... Oh, sorry, Philip. Yeah, one, one, okay. Just one point I would like to very clearly mention. This interoperability stuff and the this bandwidth between stablecoin and cbdc also comes down to the question of how to kyc people because in case you are um, urgently requiring kyc for any small cent amount you are transferring then you create a huge burden for adoption and you might even render it impossible to have people outside europe owning 
diffraction of a euro, you know? So, you know, like in an extreme case, a person in Lebanon could not even own 10 cent in digital euro because he might have missed some kind of KYC rules. And that's, for example, why I, I like the current approach of the US dollar stable coins, because they are by, by design right now a digital bearer instrument, right? It's very interesting. You can move them around even in shady DeFi pools. You can move them around wherever you are. And that makes them brilliantly usable because you can move them around to Nigeria and to back to Sweden and, and wherever you want to have this kind of value because it's not, it's not KYC embedded in the stablecoin. Um, but yes, regulation is there on a local level where, for example, in Europe, um, the Mika regulation uh, would enforce stablecoins to comply with local KYC rules, but it's not embedded into the system. And that makes a huge difference. People very often have not understood yet. And therefore, what we, and therefore, you know, it comes down to the design parameters. What do you want to have? Do you want to have a digital bearer instrument for like cross-border payments across the entire world from Lebanon to Indonesia back to Sweden? People can really own it like physical cash. Or would you like uh, to have a surveillance mode uh, type of thing where you can track down 0.1 cent wherever they are, but then you will rule out 80% of the population because they simply cannot or will not onboard. So what do you want to have? You know, both is possible and both make sense. To be honest, I think both systems will exist. And therefore, uh, the KYC ambitions of regulators, they are partly worked around by digital bearer instruments, which still exist, right? So so therefore, I, I like the Mika rule in general because they are trying to do things good on the European level, but how to do all this in, in other countries, right? You can't enforce KYC rules in remote countries uh, where there is another government which is empowered by their population. I actually wanted to come to the to the same topic, um, USD stablecoins, because Anthony uh, mentioned that there isn't uh, a global CBDC, but right now, since the US dollar is outperforming nearly every currency, and it's not that you have to look uh, into African countries, into Indonesia or into Lebanon. So basically, the uh, even the euro lost about 20% in the last year. So when you had a USD stablecoin in May 2021, uh, yeah, your your buying power would be increased by 20% right now. So we don't have to more or less like look very far away. We can um, see these things inside Europe. Maybe if I can just come back to this uh, question of um, the desirability of um, a CBTC, I think, Anthony, you made a very good point. That is uh, the real benefit uh, that you can really grasp is that uh, if it was done the right way internationally, it could uh, bring significant benefits, uh, not in the Eurozone, but beyond. Uh, now, are we like, how, how, how likely, I mean, you have been working in this space uh, at Ripple and you know how hard it is in reality to actually implement something like this. People now think, well, let's just whip up a CBDC, let's make it interoperable. It, it's nice worlds, but... Uh, Whoever has worked in payments know that to make even something pretty simple working, um, not just in one country, but in several countries, but even in one country, it's pretty hard, knows that this is very hard work. I mean, this is not just some fancy fancy words uh, that you put on a white paper. Um, this is really the, the rubber hits the road in payment systems. So lots of finance is airy-fairy and easy, but not in payments. And I think the benefit comes really potentially in the international dimension, but there's a kind of 
discrepancy between what's driving the process, because what's driving the process is national central banks. Now, if you look at the US, I mean, can you imagine, just look at the law, at the mandates, can you imagine that the uh, Fed says, well, what is really important to make this digital dollar internationally consistent so that it works in China and in Russia and in the European Union and in Africa, um, they were going to say, what's the key US interest and uh, how can we drive this interest on the financial side? We do it in controlling payments via SWIFT and in the digital dollar, we are, this, uh, we are designing it in such a way that we are controlling it and it serves our objectives. And I think other countries are going to, to do it maybe in a less, in a less sort of um, outspoken way, but they are going to do it in the same way. And therefore, while we see that the desirability or the benefits really come potentially from the international dimension, the driving forces, they are all national. And it's very hard to bring these two things together, the driving forces and the benefit side. And this is why I'm not very optimistic. I think that's a, it's a really interesting point. When you look at the, the, the power of the dollar at the moment, you know, Stephen's just said, you know, it's, it's off the scale and, you know, it's, it's, you know, financial crisis or whatever's happening in the world is, is driving that. But you, you talk to, I would class them medium-sized countries and, you know, 50, 60, 70 million is probably not medium-sized, but it's, you know, some of the, the sort of countries we're talking to. And a lot of their discussions are around remittances and sort of payments into the country and payments out. And actually, the central bank's part of that is understanding the full amount of monies in and out of a country, which could be into billions. And, you know, for some of these countries, they're quite small uh, GDP numbers, let's say, and their cross border is is massive due to to a number of different reasons. And you could extrapolate that and say, if you did a CBDC within your country, you can then use the payments to be using that. So the digital X, whatever country it is, and that could then pose a challenge to the dollar and you know the reserve currency as such in the world so i think it's really interesting to think you're talking to central banks whose job is to look after the the internal money and even the 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 uk the bank of england said very clearly that when the crisis was happening a few weeks ago there with the the pound falling the bank of england were clearly saying it's not our role to do that now we can help and there are things but our remit is to look after the the pound within within the uk and things so I think these medium-sized countries could change that narrative because then they would challenge the US and the Fed in terms of the you know the reserve currency or the payment currency and I think that could be where some of this does change their narrative from just internal to actually we do need uh, to think externally as well just to add another perspective um on everything that you just brought to the table. I mean, what we've seen with the announcement of the digital ruble being introduced a couple of, of weeks or months ago at this point, I mean, next to the benefits that are listed, such as uh, making payments faster, simpler and safer and so on, you actually also see listed the uh, reason or the aim to promote competition amongst financial institutions, which is a very interesting one, obviously, in the light of today's political um, developments around the world as well. And I mean, funnily enough, CBDCs are often criticized in a way where we say the roadmap is 
so long. I mean, the timeline is several years long, and then you um, shift over to DeFi, which basically you open up the news, or not the newspaper, Twitter, every single day, and you see uh, the next 10 developments that have taken place overnight, right? And so it's just interesting to see the digital ruble being introduced likely next year from that standpoint, and not just being introduced on a national level, but actually with the purpose in mind to solve what you just mentioned in terms of the interoperability with different countries and actually seeing this interoperability as one of the main driving forces as to why a digital ruble is introduced in the first place. So we've talked a lot about the international landscape right now and basically the objectives. Is there any comments that you have on different goals and aims of governments and our currency unions as to why a CBDC should be introduced or maybe shouldn't be introduced, looking at you, Peter, specifically? Well, that's a, that's a pretty pretty big question, um, and I'm not sure I'm actually able to answer, to answer it satisfactorily. Um, I, would, I would say that um, lots of um, countries, let's say, outside the 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 small West, um, they have looked at these uh, projects um, sort of um, um, from different perspectives. And um, if you take um, a, a, a make a little detour, if you look at China, I mean, they are, it, it's very clear. Basically, uh, there were two private companies, uh, Alipay and WePay, who were taking over the uh, entire retail payments in the country. And the central bank decided, uh, and the government decided um, that's that's that goes too far. That is basically what Libra was trying to do uh, in the West, and they said no. Uh, so we are going to introduce a um, a digital yuan, and um, no, that was basically the story. Uh, but um, the digital ruble and similar efforts, I think, in other countries in the area. Um, they have given they have been given some support in terms of motivation by the fact that um we in the west we have actually uh, weaponized uh, the financial system so by uh, actually using swift uh, to really which was unifying the world which gave also if you sort of look at it in negative terms <laughs> or it, it gave the NSA a complete overview of what was going on um by weaponizing it we have basically told everyone that don't trust the system. You need to have alternatives. Maybe you use it, but you need fallbacks. And now people are working on fallbacks. Uh, now the Chinese in the Belt and Roads Initiative, they have uh, SIPs already. It's not widely used yet, but now suddenly it be becomes very interesting. Uh, uh, in Russia, together with Iran and some other countries in the area, uh, they have uh, the SFPF. And now they are also developing the digital ruble. And the idea is to have fallbacks, to have alternatives. You don't want to be reliant on one system that is controlled uh, sort of to say it in a catch-all, is controlled by the US. And um, now we may like this or not, but it goes sort of into, into a different direction from having a uniform worldwide payment systems. It's basically the world is splitting into two and the people who are sort of um, labeled bad guys by, by the West, they are looking for alternatives and digital currencies uh, depending on how you design them, is clearly one one promising avenue. 
Just um, uh, to come back to your question, Sarah, on um, some of the practicalities of what CBDCs are solving for for non sort of Western countries. Um, so we we work with the island nation of Palau, and they're a dollarized country, so they they use the the US dollar, but they don't have a central bank and things like that. One of the most uh, striking problems for me that I I'd never thought of is it's a number of islands, and to keep people you you know using money they have to physically fly it in to each of the islands all the time and that costs a fortune and obviously if you sit in london or frankfurt you you don't even contemplate that <laughs> you never think wow is there enough physical dollars on the island to pay the people at the end of the week or end of the month so so there's practicalities like real practicalities and if you think of scale of some big countries and getting cash physical cash to remote parts and then a second um real life you know solution for them that, that we're launching is um when they get paid they they tend to lend to friends and family and um so friends and family could be on a different island and different you know again quite complex to do so one you've got to physically take your money on the friday whenever you get paid and give it to your auntie and your uncle and your parents but then secondly how do you get that back and it gets complex so again one of the things cbdc could do is programmable you know i lend you ten dollars uh this week and you automatically it comes from you know your your sort of salary or your your payment system you give me back one dollar a week to pay that back and things so sort of p2p lending and things and you know these are very small they're very you know they're very important like massively important for the people in palau like you know this is so 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 important but it's thinking about these these sort of areas uh these use cases in each of the countries and i think that's the detail that we spend our time with so we very much spend our time discussing with the central banks and the governments and whoever else is in the network of what are you trying to fix in this country what really is the issue because like in germany in the uk actually paying for your coffee at starbucks is not an issue because we have cards and we've probably got 10 euros in our pocket it really isn't an issue and no matter how much i try and say it, it isn't but there are some other things that maybe and I, I gave the example of covid and benefits and things like that so i think the more the country can get into the details of why they're doing it and forget about the bigger we're doing it because we should do um you know the, the more of these real solutions. And the final point I'd make is if you implement a CBDC on a, a you know distributed ledger network where you can make micropayments and things like that, you actually change the dynamics of the, the whole economy. And we call it CBDC platform for innovation. And basically, we don't know what people are going to use it for. But you just gave an example of DeFi. DeFi happens on crypto networks. Well, if you have crypto technology for your CBDC, DeFi can happen there as well in probably, well, likely a more controlled way. And, you know, we are back into privacy and the issues there, but you could do micropayments for energy and, you know, people could understand how much energy they are using all the time. Or my best example is TikTok. You know, nobody, you know, I don't know whether people, some people get paid for TikTok, but if you're trying to watch a TikTok or, you know, do content, you can't make a, a one cent payment. But that creator might live in Ecuador and $10 could feed the family for a year. Why can't we enable so that a million of us watch that video and that person then gets $10 or whatever it be? And again, so CBDC's technology would allow their economies to, to use micropayments and the benefits like that. So 
it's many different use cases, but that's what we try and focus on of how this will and should be adopted. Well, thanks for mentioning the islands, uh, Anthony. I, I have been working uh, for a while, actually for a couple of years with the Marshall Islands, trying to uh, bring them a digital currency, uh, which uh, was actually pretty much advanced. But then uh, sort of uh, the practical questions that you I mean, in in the Marshall Islands, it's cash on the boat. It's not normally on the plane. It's cash on the boat. And uh, if, uh, if, for example, in the pandemic, uh, they were short of cash and the cash came normally, it's uh, came normally uh, from uh, Hawaii and without any planes, there was no cash coming. So they had a liquidity squeeze. So they have very practical, pro- I mean, this is small countries and there they are real problems and with uh, this modern technology, you can leapfrog some stuff and can actually solve real problems. Uh, the issue is it's this is not sort of creating huge uh, huge benefits or uh, huge payoffs for for private companies. So, but it's um, this this is a, the area where you can see rather than in Europe. Um, Paying for a coffee is not an issue. Uh, paying uh, in these island economies in the Pacific, uh, getting some transfers done, it's a big issue. And um, there, actually, CBDCs could could help a lot. Since we uh, are talking about some examples, I think it's very crucial not to underestimate the design of the currency. Um, I've been to Cuba in 2014, and they have these uh, this two two currency system: the one for the citizens and the other one for the uh, tourists. And uh, the reality in, uh, in Cuba is that the peso for the citizens is not really used. It's, it's used for bread, it's used for, for butter, it's used for, for ham. But everybody is more or less like spending their free time to, to get the cook, the tourist currency. Because with a tourist currency, you have a, you have a black market where you can uh, buy, buy, buy um, just good stuff for the car. And um, that's just one example from my side to to keep in mind that the decision how to how to design a currency is very crucial for either the adoption and otherwise the the usage and um, maybe that's a, a a little bridge back to to uh, what are the SVPs maybe inside the the uh, euro area. Yeah, but you know. Then, then the hardness, you know, the scarcity, the hardness of a currency such as the US dollar relative uh, to other currencies is a benefit you can basically sell on the market. But you can only sell this with a digital bearer instrument uh, like physical cash. You cannot sell this in case you are asking all Cubans to pass uh, through an uh, onboarding process, you know, then it doesn't work anymore. And uh, I, I, for example, you know, now we're talking about geopolitics. Of course, it makes sense for Europe to, um, to, to, to send out the, the sovereignty argument. You know, we need to have our own payment infrastructure and so on and this debt and so on. But then why the hell is the ECB asking Amazon? to do the first prototype as a US company. Why is this? You know, we uh, speaking for Germany, we also have a, a couple of very excellent uh, online e-commerce platforms, which also have payment issues, you know, like online pharmas- pharmacies and stuff like this. I don't understand this, right? And um, therefore, my personal feeling is that many of these uh, CBDC projects will not work. They will go down the train, even though we don't expect it by now. But what will do work will be the stable coins. 
right? Um, it's primarily the US dollar stable coins. Um, why? Because they already have 95% of the market share. You can use them. Yes, they need to be regulated more properly, but you can do actually things with them. So I think the digital dollar at some point of time uh, will at least be to 50% be made of the stable coins running on crypto assets. Believe it or not, that's my opinion. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think you spot on. We normally talk about three classifications of digital currency: cryptocurrency, stablecoin, CBDC, and, <clears throat> and the variances around those. So, so I think you know it's the same thing in in our world. It's underpinned by crypto technologies, whether it's the CBDC, the stablecoin, the regulated stablecoin, or whatever. I think because that's where that's where the world is going. That's what people are asking for. So, I think you know Europe needs to, uh, along with all the other nations, come up with the regulation sooner rather than later of what a stable coin looks like and then we expect a massive amount of commercial banks to then issue stable coins and maybe some of that is more anonymous than others and things so i think there's a whole scale that's going to happen from pure crypto and you know that those through to the cbdc and i think it'll be interesting where it ends and with each country i think it's going to be very different uh, very different mixes based on regulation controls and and people's freedom and privacy so philip just brought up the kyc thing and i think that's something um pretty important for the digital euro as well because right now or uh, what the ecb more or less like published is that you only can use the digital euro when you are kyc so in a two-tiered model where uh, banks kyc you and then you have maybe another iban next to your to to, to your uh, current uh, commercial bank account uh, with a digital euro and i think this should be um, done the other way around you can have unconditional access with a hardware bearer instrument, cash-like um, access. And uh, whenever you are um, have AML, uh, things like uh, transaction, um, you maybe spend too too much um, with your hardware bearer instruments, then you are KYC on demand, maybe with a self-serving identity logic behind it that you um, know, okay, now my data is tracked and um, that's actually something that should or could be um, a, a, a quite nice design option in, in say, Europe but the unconditional access right now is uh, for, for, uh, for, for me I think off the table because we have the two-tiered system we have um, the KYC first principle and I think we have this third party um, validation of transactions and so the unconditional access seems to be off the table. So what what are your thoughts about uh, the the KYC or the unconditional access regarding the digital euro? Well, you know, fair enough. Everybody can decide this as he or she wishes, but there is unconditional access to Bitcoin to the, and to the stable coins on Ethereum, right? So in competition, for example, from third-party countries, let's make an example, Indonesia or South Africa, um, then uh, what would you transact there? The unconditional ones just for ease of use, because then you don't have to integrate uh, a lo lots of IT stuff, um, which, which requires the KYC stuff. You know, it's tiring for everybody, the integrator, the locals, the merchants, the users. It's, it's very, very interesting discussion. But And therefore, I think you have to always discuss CBDCs in combination with stablecoins, because it's both uh, like a form of money. And one is private, one is commercial. And therefore, for example, I have been asked to do a workshop um, for top management of a bank on CBDCs. 
And then I said, well, I can only talk about CBDCs in case I also integrate stable coins in this workshop. And then they told me, yeah, but it's not on the agenda. And then I told him, yeah, but it doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense. It's the wrong framing. And uh, you see here, you know, lots of stuff is going uh, wrong. By the way, that's why DEA also uh, created um, the CBDC Academy. Like, I think it's a, a six-hour education program, uh, which is costing not much money. I think it's it's below 150 euro, which really costs not much money to bring people on the same level. Just a side remark. Yeah, I think it's it, it's also, you've got to remember with um, a CBDC or stablecoin, whichever ones, um, whether we're on private and public ledger, again, is different. But if you allow access to a public stablecoin, um, which could be backed by a central uh, commercial bank, etc., or backed with gold <clears throat> or real estate, You only need a wallet. So it's about how do you access that wallet? So it could be you allow for 50 euro transactions, anybody download the wallet. So you just download this wallet, you know, Anthony wallet, and that's it. And you can transact 50 euros at a time. If you want to do 100, you have to do your national identity. And if you want to do a thousand, you know, so I think there's ways to bring the two together. But I, I do agree, it's probably a stable yeah rather than a, a CBDC in in that case, because every single central bank we've spoken to wants the private ledger version, not the public ledger version. Um, will that change? Don't know. It depends how much stable coins take off versus CBDCs. But the, there's a role for around that for both. But I think that the fact that it's a wallet, it doesn't need to be an IBAN, it doesn't need to be an existing account and all that. And it could be your mobile phone wallet, for example. So, you know, it, it, I use Vodafone when I'm in the UK. They That could be the wallet and it just has, you know, the payment system as such in it. So again, it doesn't need to be the Bank of England wallet. It can be my favorite football team, for example. So I think there's a lot more flexibility and opportunities with that. But I'm I'm with you, Philip, that I'm not sure whether that's stablecoin or CBDC. I think it's will err more to a stable coin in that sort of discussion. Just to that point, thank you for opening the discussion, uh, broadening it from just CBDC focus to stable coins, because as you said, the landscape really isn't uh, complete because realistically people are going to look at all of the options that they have that are uh, in the close environment. And um, this is actually also another question that we, we kind of just see happening. Why are some countries inclined to actually have a blockchain-based um, CBDC versus others that are quite reluctant, for example, Ukraine, um, we've seen they are talking about bridging to DeFi, so much more inclined than other countries that we've seen. From your experience, what would some reasons be for this? I mean, I'm talking from a blockchain cryptocurrency company, so, <laughs> so my, my view is very, very clear on the benefits of a, a you know, distributed ledger technology is what it's about. And there's a number of benefits from faster, more secure. If you're using private um, version of it, you can onboard, you know, who's onboarded, you know, who's issued the wallets. The most but, but Anthony, the interesting part is they know all of this, right? They they have companies um, no, they don't. present they... all these things to you, but then they say, no, we're still going to go another route. How do you how do you explain that decision against blockchain based CBDC? So it's about so they don't they don't believe those benefits. So I can I talk to um, uh, a central bank very near you, and they do not believe those benefits very clearly. They they tell me every time I have a chat with them. The 
the point is we need to prove it out to them. Now, the funniest thing is, I don't know why we need to prove it out, because if you take XRP ledger as a, a public ledger, and at the moment its process, its value that it's processing is like $20 billion or whatever. You know, it peaked at whatever, you know, a few years ago. Nobody touches that. We don't have anything to do with it. You know, it's we build on it and utilize it. So the proof is is around the understanding of what a ledger does and how it works and they look at it they tend to central bankers look at it through the mindset of the current system working backwards to say how could you put dlt into it and it doesn't make sense if you were to start the world today you'd build it with a dlt without question and but if you take what we've got today and try and change it bearing in mind billions are invested in the systems today it's a different way of looking at it so I, most of the time I find it's people that don't understand DLT. And no matter how many times I explain it, um, it, it still comes back. No, but we want to build it with the existing system and a database and the rest of it. You go, okay, you're missing the total point of a DLT, you know, around track traceability, trust, speed, et cetera. So it's, it's the education thing. And, you know, uh, Philip's just yeah. mentioned you know, courses and things. Well, um, um, Anthony, I think education is certainly certainly uh, an issue. But um, of course, um, if we had a greenfield development uh, in many countries, you can say <clears throat> smaller countries, you may have a sort of kind of greenfield development. Uh, uh, so you can leapfrog stages because uh, a financial system doesn't exist. Uh, but then in countries where you have a functioning system, um, you ask yourself, what do you add by now moving from uh, a working system, actually a very well working system, as we discussed previously, to a DLT? What's the value added? Um, not sure. I mean, if I'm if I'm sitting in Frankfurt or in sitting uh, in the Bank of England and say, should we move over over RTGS to DL, DLT now? I'd say why? What what's in it? And uh, it's basically um, then you say this is this. We know this car. This drives very well and it's very comfortable. It's very safe and we have driven with it now 200k and. Uh, my dad had the same car and it also worked very well. And you tell me, get a Tesla and watch a film by the car is actually running itself. It's pretty safe. I mean, this DLT technology exi has existed now for almost 10 years or even more, 15 years. And the only thing that really sort of seems to be working uh, without having issues uh, so far has been Bitcoin. Everything else, uh, you have governance issues. Uh, you have uh, cyber security issues. You have traceability issues. Uh, it's not fully understood. I mean, of, obviously, the level of education, as you say, is very important. But uh, even the people who are fully into it, there are lots of people who say whether this is going to be sort of bulletproof for 100 years, I'm not so sure. And then if you are a decision maker, anyway, uh, sort of risk averse, you are actually putting a country into the equation. It's not a small company where you try something out. If it doesn't work, oh, hell, <clears> doesn't <throat> really matter. Um, you go with something sort of let, that looks safe. I mean, like people uh, sort of, they don't fully understand it. They see what has worked in the past. They don't really see what's the, what what's really the killer the killer advantage of moving to the other system, they say, let's use something that we know. And 
in a more fundamental level, I think if uh, a key advantage of a DLT system is really that uh, if it's well done and you can trust it, uh, that uh, I mean the algorithm and the technical technological setup that you don't need a central agent. You need uh, you need uh, th- the system uh, set up in a way like Bitcoin, uh, which doesn't obviously work for payments so well, but like Bitcoin, where basically the algorithm is pretty simple. You understand it, and you don't need to trust anyone. If, but, however, uh, just one second. Yeah, if, fine. however, you are in a system like let's say, uh, the European Union, where you already have trusted agents and you're not going to get rid of them because the RTGS is going to run like uh, in the past. So you have a trusted agent that has a lot of information about what's going on in the economy. Then why would you duplicate and have an additional system? When, if you have a trusted agent, a permissionless system sort of um, is, is not really intuitive. Just wanted, Actually, just wanted to add that, um, uh, so XRP Ledger is a public ledger which has been around for over 10 years and had no hacks, no downtime or anything. So just, um, there's not just Bitcoin and Bitcoin isn't a payment network. So I just wanted to clear that one. Um, the other thing to say just about DLTs though, they are built, and it's my phrasing, for an imperfect world. They're built for when things go wrong. So the point of them is, is when one node goes down, there's another node, et cetera, et cetera. So whereas the existing finance system, we've built it up over hundreds of years, give or take, with all these really costly recovery and audit and reconciliations. So eventually we're going to look at the system and go, this is not efficient. It's too cumbersome and it's too costly. Now, that's outweighed with exactly what you just said, Peter, which is the risk of moving now. So for a small country, there's no the, the risk is minimal because their systems are just not that good. For the Eurozone, for the UK, et cetera, the risk is too big to move just yet. But maybe in five years, 10 years, you know, sooner. Um, that risk is going to flip. And I think that's what it is. That's where this sort of discussions of whether to use DLT or not. Plus, in five years' time, there'll be a lot more smaller, medium-sized countries already using it. So the big countries go, ah, it works for this and, and that. So I think part of it is, one's education, as we said, which is so, so, so important. And two's also about timing and risk, because it's it's not the right time, really, for the digital euro. And many of the problems just mentioned um, will simply be solved by stable coins in case you regulate them and specify them correctly, right? The, the, the Mika slash European stable coins are misspecified, as we now know. But the US stable coins, they are specified nicely. Yeah, very true. We actually also have somebody from the audience commenting that many CBDC trials that we see using blockchain tech report that using uh, DLT is not necessary to achieve certain outcomes that they desire and actually also are proving to be quite cumbersome and causing uh, performance issues. They're naming the Bank of Korea and uh, the Boston Fed as as an example here. And I think this bridges perfectly to our Q&A session as from the audience. They have actually been quite active. We do have a couple of questions that I'm going to extend to you as the panelists for today. This is referring to um, the things that we talked about a bit earlier. So the first question would be um, regarding the liquidity handled by CBDCs as compared to the ones um, to the one that is handled in transactions in crypto right now. So, so what do you say in terms of the liquidity that's being moved 
um, in the CBDC, again, coming back to the pilots that have been launched where we have numbers on them versus um, the value locked and uh, also the transactions uh, taking place in DeFi on a daily basis right now? Well, I mean, the, the transactions in DeFi are still small in comparison to, you know, the finance system for the Eurozone, for example. So again, it depends what you reference. But in comparison to Palau, um, DeFi is probably a hundred times more, a thousand times more, I don't know. So um, so, so it just depends what your reference is. And you've also got to remember at the peak of, um, you know, like crypto trading and DeFi, you know, last year, literally last November, you know, it was trillions of dollars. So you know the testing is 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 happening real time it's just a case of getting through to the system getting through the process uh, to the new systems and i just want to comment on the fact that blockchain technology doesn't work for career and boston fed's view um the question is one which blockchain and technology did they implement and how because that's mainly the answer and secondly why were they plugging it into current existing systems so one of the eurozone issues is you have to plug in certain parts of the dlt to an existing system and you go that that that's not the way it works so you tend to find that it has to for quite right reasons especially around kyc and monitoring and they have to plug into old school systems and therefore you're not getting the full benefits um, that you could do. And I think uh, um, I think that's a that's a very good point. And I think uh, uh, what you mentioned, Anthony, in the in the uh, existing systems, um, sort of you may ignore small payments, and uh, you can use DLT-based systems maybe for a couple of hundred bucks or so. Uh, but once uh, you you throw it open anonymous without kyc um payments of uh, 5000 10000 hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, it's simply not going to happen uh, because uh, uh, the entire uh, control of illegal activities uh, is based on controlling this and if uh, you cannot control Bitcoin, obviously, but then there are alternatives because people need to get, uh, as long as the world is not purely digitalized, people need to get out into the real world. Uh, that means that that is they need to move out of uh, these, um, um, let's say, let's take a stable coin into a real dollar, into a real euro. And uh, I think it's these points where you move in and out of the system that will be subjected to uh, draconic tr controls if it's very easy to get in. All right. Then the next question from the audience is regarding um, the purpose of a CBDC to facilitate cross-border payments. How come so many um, different wholesale projects are yeah, well, reported basically from, from different banks um, around the world if the purpose of retail CBDC is to to channel cross-border payments. Anyone that cares to What's the question? Comment? What was the question? I didn't understand. I think the person is wondering about the difference in wholesale CBDC and retail CBDC um, cross-border payment purposes. So why do one and the other? Why do we see so many wholesale projects where the same value proposition is said to be true for retail CBDCs. I think we just have to clarify for the audience that wholesale CBDC are 
actually for banks or for interbank business. And retail CBDC is for the domestic payments, actually. And when it comes to cross-border payments, um, you have to keep in mind that when transferring a euro into another currency, this is very costly. But also for the business use cases where you have correspondence banking system, there are also high fees. And um, you have to separate these two activities. On the one hand, um, citizens trying to send money globally. And on the other hand, um, banks try to lower their yeah, forex exchange rates um, when it comes to high, high amounts of, of, of money being, being moved uh, globally. So yeah, that's actually, I think, the answer. So there are two activities, actually. Yeah. Yeah, this demonstrated nicely um, that there's different levels of knowledge in the, our audience, obviously. And we have another um, question that I think uh, might be quite obvious, but actually uh, might not be as obvious, uh, given that we actually got it as a question. How do I get access to Bitcoin, Ethereum or stablecoin easily without necessarily going through an exchange? So doing um, the KYC process, this was specifically directed at Philip, actually. Yeah, that's, I, I didn't investigate this, but I have heard that uh, basically you can, <clears throat> when you travel to El Salvador and to be tourist there, then uh, you simply create expenditures uh, there and come back with a bag of Bitcoin. This apparently works, I have heard. Um, but besides this, it's it's not easy to get um, un-KYC'd Bitcoins yeah? uh, through mining. You can basically set up a Bitcoin mining facility in your sleeping room, for example, uh, even a small one, and then even pay a higher electricity price uh, to basically get um, un-KYC'd Bitcoins. But it's, it's all not perfect um, because the regulation is there. It works well. It's good that the regulation is there and loopholes are um, getting smaller and smaller. Therefore, I think the, the best trick would be doing a holiday in El Salvador. I can give a, a crypto answer from a crypto blockchain and somebody has been doing this myself for like seven, eight years. Um, so nothing's dodgy, nothing's hard to do. You can set yourself up a wallet on almost any of the networks yourself and you can hold the keys yourself. So be it an XRP ledger, be it Ethereum, be it Bitcoin, be it hundreds of others. So it is very easy to set yourself up a wallet the challenge is to get your euros to buy the Bitcoin, the Ethereum or whatever else. So you can easily set it up and hold them. Now, maybe you can pay somebody in cash and then they send it to you and things like that. But the challenge is to get the um, the, the euros to purchase the XRP or the Ethereum or the Bitcoin. Um, so that's where there are some exchanges that do that. Um, but I'm not going to talk about exchanges now because um, we have you know, a few issues around exchanges at the moment. But there's definitely some exchanges um, that do allow non-KYC at the moment. I am not suggesting that people should use exchanges and these exchanges specifically. But if you want to, they, they do do that. Yeah, on that note, of course, always keep an eye on what's going on in the crypto news space um and be informed basically what it entails to to go through an exchange and to go through a kyc um, process but very very interesting points gonna book my plane ticket to el salvador shortly after um this panel tonight just in closing basically one last question to you as our panelists we're of course highly interested in what you think are the non-negotiable design features of a retail cbdc and you can be specific and talk about one currency union or country or be broader in your answer? In my opinion, programmable money is a big issue. So um, 
yeah, giving giving money a reason to be spent or giving money an expiration date. Um, I think this is something non-negotiable. And I think Philip mentioned uh, something um, similar as well to put too many information in one silo. So keep the data uh, separated because I actually listened to 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 a podcast um, where it said until the information is only in one uh, until data is only in one silo, it's information. But when you combine information, it gets knowledge. And just to yeah keep the knowledge or the data um, as low as possible. I think that's two things we have to keep in mind for for CBDC. Uh, I I think um, I'll be a bit uh, brutal, perhaps. Uh, um, I think uh, very few things are actually non-negotiable. I think the only thing that's really non-negotiable is the stuff needs to work. If it doesn't work, people are not going to use it. And the second non-negotiable, in my view, is that if you introduce it and it's cruised the economy, that's also not something that's going to be done. Uh, everything else, I think, really depends on the objectives. It may be strategic objectives, maybe geopolitical objectives. And um, you can see, for example, in the West, we think that privacy is very important. But in many countries, actually, people say, we don't care really uh, very much. Um, uh, so and they use it easily, and uh, they understand that there's very little privacy because maybe in their in their where they are living there's very little privacy anyway. Uh, so I think um, um, I would say what's really non-negotiable is it needs to work and it can't screw the economy. And everything else is really uh, depends on the country, the circumstances, the objectives. I think you know. I think. I would totally agree with Peter. I think programmable money is being uh, the only examples that keep getting used all the time are negative examples, which actually could be positive. Um, I think there's way payments can be programmed to make things better for people. I'm not suggesting I agree with it or not, but I'm saying there are ways that it can work in a positive way for certain countries and certain people. Privacy, I think, is fully negotiable depending on what you want. And I always draw back, I think Philip mentioned this at the start, or you, Sarah, so, was we all our data is shared on this and everything I do is shared on this. And between Google, Apple and whoever else, Facebook, Meta, you know, they they know a lot. And, you know, Stephen's just quite rightly said, and, and Philip before, it's the aggregation of that data, you know, there's there's more than enough happening to say, does it really matter that I've gone to buy a coffee? And do they really care about me buying a coffee? No. You know, even the Chinese don't care that I bought a coffee. You know, they, they're concerned about other things. So I think there's there's a bit of hysteria and a bit of over drama about this. And I think the more people see the benefits and, and what this can do, which is the challenges we've talked about the whole session of what actually is the benefits for us, um, it will be fine. So non-negotiables, I think, as like Peter said, like don't mess up my finance system because that's really not good, i.e. the country. And make sure that, we always say this, make sure that my granny can use it. So this for me is the ultimate test. Can my granny go and buy her coffee? and pay her bills that's the challenge because i i'm tech i can do this you know however many many different ways but if my granny can't make payments it's not going to work yeah well i would add the, the i would indeed add the privacy uh, stuff you know because um it's understandable that that uh, governments would like to monitor 
larger amounts of money being moved around, you know, that's fine for AML topics, but say less than 500 euro, less than 1000 euro. Why would you like to gather all that data? You know why? Honestly, why? There is this nice uh, saying by, by Jonas Groß. Uh, he found this image on Twitter somewhere and it says, privacy is the normal, right? It's it's not surveillance, uh, which needs to be normal and privacy somehow need to be argued. Privacy should be to some degree definitely normal. So um, why, why have to justify this, right? Um, that's that's basically something in our society which starts getting wrong a little bit. So therefore, I would put not like not absolute privacy there, but sufficient privacy for say specific thresholds and below. And uh, then basically, as you say, the clear benefits over and above existing solutions. That's the, the credit card zero thing, you know, where's the benefit? And uh, ultimately, um, will it will it be, can it, can it be possibly used to harm people, right? Right now we have a very good system, but what happens in 25 years when we have a regime change, right? Can then the data be misused? Yeah. Um, and ideally you would like to um, prevent this by creating an architecture which cannot be misused, right? Just to add uh, my two cents basically towards the end now regarding the topic of privacy and coming back to the meme a little bit. I mean, it's it's not exactly a meme because the uh, owner uh, or the, the person that said it, Edward Snowden, basically said that privacy is the right to reveal oneself selectively to the world. And that's going back to the, the idea of you don't necessarily have um, something to hide but it's still your decision whether you want to disclose all information or not what it's all about. And then you're also saying nobody else has nothing to die either at the same time. And so I would agree here. And Philip, um, basically what you said, we, we shouldn't have to justify the privacy um, aspect. That's also going back to the United Nations definition that privacy is a human right and thus uh, non-negotiable. That'll be interesting to, to play out certainly, um, at least in the Euro area. I mean, we aren't as far as as other countries um, that Anthony are probably in contact with, for example, or uh, Peter as well. But we are, of course, um, eager to see kind of in two years time or three years time to look back um, on this panel and kind of see what materialized, what didn't. Um, and oh, yes, also on the topic of, Philip, what you mentioned, policy change or government change. This is going back to the point that I mentioned in the very beginning, basically saying separate or have a secular state when it comes to financial stability and financial policy and then uh, policy and politics as its own um, aspect within a country. So as soon as these two intermingle, uh, it's going <laughs> to probably go beyond uh, what we think a CBDC is as of right now, at least. That being said, I would like to thank all of you as our panelists today, I think this was an outstanding discussion. And I know I learned a lot, certainly, especially the uh, concrete examples that you were able to bring to the table, getting your view and also seeing a couple of the views clash, not necessarily um, aligning, but I think that's also the beauty that we see around the world right now in CBDC development. And also a big thank you to the audience. Thank you for having tuned in. If you want to stay up to date with the developments of CBDCs and stablecoins and crypto worldwide, then of course, make sure to follow the Digital Euro Association everywhere. And we will take care of gathering all this information for you so you don't have to. That being said, thank you so much and have a good evening. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Nice.